we're going to look at how, and I want to use my hands for this, how history and archaeology kind of intersect each other, right? So, um, and we're going to see how they complement each other. And we're going to do that, and we're going to ask two questions. So, um, that's going to separate our study into not exactly two parts, but close to it. So, <clears throat> but before we get there, I, I want to kind of just add, tell you why I think we should study this. And uh, these are just four things that I, that I wrote uh, actually this morning. So um, it's to show that the Bible is reliable. And I think we've, you've, kept, you've been getting that, right, you, that from Ken, obviously. And then it's illuminate the biblical text. I didn't bring it with me, but you know, when we did that whole archaeology conference here, that wasn't just to get people smarter, it was actually to challenge people. And the question was, can archaeology prove the Bible? If you paid attention, the answer is no, because the Bible doesn't need to be proven. And if you had paid attention, and I hope you did, to Pastor Doug's devotional that Wednesday, that was exactly that. What, the, what archaeology does, it just simply, not simply, uh, I think that's an understatement, it illuminates the biblical text, okay? It illuminates the biblical text. So why are we going to study this today is because it shows the Bible to be reliable. We're a Bible church. That makes sense. It illuminates the biblical text, but it equips you, and I'd say, should say you and me, equips you and me to share this with skeptics. And I really want to challenge you to, as we go through this today, think about people in your life that you could be sharing the little information you're going to get today with and invite people to explore that further with you to come to church, okay? So those are the reasons we're going to be doing that. And with that, let's pray and get started. Father, we come before you this morning in awe of you and of your word. We realize that uh, history has a lot to say about events of the New Testament. And we look to you to guide us as we study and as we look into these, um, these amazing facts and, um, and these interesting people that you have... Uh, um, that you have created and in the records that they have left for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, so history and archaeology. The first question I want to ask you is this. Uh, history, archaeology, can anybody give me a definition of what history is and if you want to contrast that with archaeology? So what's the difference between history and archaeology? Yes? History is a collection of facts and events and things like mm -hmm. that that have gone, that are in the past. Okay. And archaeology is proof that some of these, um, some of these civilizations and and it, it just supports facts of history. Okay. Anybody else? That's good. I want to pick out a part though. Um, thank you. Yeah. Because I, I, I take I issue with almost everything. Well, I knew I could count. Cecilia Tribune. Okay. Why there's only three people over here and everybody's over there? What's going on? These are faster to You gotta sit over here. You gotta sign seating. I mean, this is completely unbalanced. So, anybody else want to come up with a good definition of history? Well, history is recorded by the victors. Usually. <laughs> We're going to pick on that one, too. You guys are slowly getting to where I want you to go, but keep but, going. But history is a record of those things that happened. So I hear the word record. Can I cheat? And yes. Do it. You told me last night. Oh. No, <laughs> please don't cheat. No, you're... No, please don't. Please don't. Okay, please don't. So, so, Actually, Christian, thanks for participating. Yeah, I'm going to pick on you later, too. Everything so, uh, real quick here. So, I heard the word record. If it's a record, how, what kind of record? Written. Aha, okay. So, the written has how many letters in that word? 
Seven. seven. There's seven, and history has seven. So history is written, okay? So when we say, uh, I know it sounds, so when we say prehistory, what do we mean? Before, Before writing. Before writing, okay? So it's really simple. History is written. So if you see something written down, it's history, okay? So history are, is, are things that are written. Archaeology, we're going to ask that. That's the second question, what is archaeology? And I know you guys have been studying under Ken here, so... I'm sure you know. We're going to talk about four characters, and I kind of giving you a hint right here, so I'm going to go back. Uh, we're going to talk about four characters, four people, these are real people, uh, that existed in time, and they all existed, were born during the first century, and wrote during the first century, and that uh, contribute to our knowledge of the New Testament. And uh, any, any hints on who the first one is? He is up there just for a minute. That guy in the picture, yeah, okay. One demerit for you, minus one, we'll just keep you track of it. Uh, okay, who? Yeah. There's only one spot, Tim, just so you know. Um, come on, guys, you know this guy. Starts with the J. Okay, these are extra-biblical characters. Extra-biblical characters. So people that are outside the Bible that wrote... Josephus. Josephus. So that's the dude right there, Josephus. Now, Josephus was born in 37 A.D., he died sometime after 100 A.D. Uh, in Rome, most likely. We don't know for sure. Uh, he wrote four books. He wrote Antiquities of the Jews, which is a history of Jewish people. Basically, it's a parallel to the Bible, really. Uh, full of weird stuff in it. Uh, don't spend a lot of time. I actually read all of it. It took me a year. Um, we have uh, The Wars of the Jews. Fascinating. I read that, too. Took me about a year to do that one, too. Uh, it's, it's slow going. Fascinating, okay? He also wrote against Appion, which was a defense of the antiquity of the Jewish people, and he also wrote his own autobiography, okay? I guess his own autobiography is redundant, but he wrote about himself. And um, now the two books that we're concerned about is Antiquities of the Jews and Wars of the Jews. And Antiquities of the Jews, we, he shed some light on, on Jesus and James. He apparently, there's a record on there, Jesus and James. However, if you Google that up right now, if you Google that up right now, you will see that most people will dispute that, saying that that was something that added later on. Which brings us to one of my points today is that when you're dealing with history, uh, uh, you know, as it intersects archaeology, history can be disputed because we can say, how do we know that these writings, you know, were faithfully recorded and maintained for us today? But I feel fairly certain that that those are legitimate. I've read them. They were in English, yes, but they seem to fit the text very well. So um, he mentions Jesus, he mentions James, the brother of Jesus, and he does shed some light on the date of the birth of Jesus, but not a good kind of light. And I'll explain that later. We're going to come back to that later, okay? In Wars of the Jews, he describes the destruction of Jerusalem from the first-person perspective. He was an eyewitness to these events. So he was an eyewitness to these events. When the four Roman legions, three that came from the east, and one that came from the west, no, one that came from the west, three came from the east under Titus, which was the son of Emperor Vespasian. Uh, he witnessed these events. And when you read this, and you can read it in modern English today, you don't have to do British English when you read it, uh, it's fascinating. So he recorded this as an eyewitness. And then no stone left upon another that we hear from the Olivet Discourse from Jesus, uh, is, he's the, he was an eyewitness to that. Okay, fascinating, fascinating account um, of, of that. Uh, one little quick little tidbit, and I'm going to manage my time wisely. So, you know, Romans had artillery, they used catapults, right? And they launched big balls of stone, and they were really easy to spot 
because Jerusalem stone, when you carve it out and you throw it through the air, it contrasts really well against the sky. So they would say, the Jews would, on the walls would say, baby incoming, that, that's the, what they say. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for baby, tinok. Tinok, there's a little baby coming, and they would get out of the way in this. Romans got smart, painted the uh, stones, the color of the sky, and Josephus records people losing their heads and bodies being thrown, really, really awful. Also, some you know, peop, uh, cannibalism uh, uh, among the people that were trapped in there and whatnot. So uh, the next character, we got three of them here on the screen. Uh, clearly, the younger one is the one that was able to get a color picture of himself. <laughs> no, that's just so Tony. It looks a little creepy. Um, we got Tacitus, play the younger, and uh, Suetonius. I, I call Suetonius, but whatever. I've read these two. I have not. I've just read excerpts from him. As you can see, I'm a complete nerd. It has close to no life whatsoever. But I really love Roman history, and uh, like I'm, I just absolutely think it's fascinating. So, uh, Tacitus was born in 58 A.D. and he died about 118 A.D. Uh, and here's what he says. I'm going to quote. Uh, from him in English. He wasn't speaking English. He's probably speaking Latin or Greek here, but it's Christus, the founder of the name, <clears throat> the name Christian, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator, wrong, I'll explain that later, Pontius Pilate. Isn't that cool? The four Gospels record that Jesus died under who? I just thought during the reign, most likely, of Tiberius. So we have an extra biblical source that absolutely does that. What he's wrong about is the title procurator, because he wasn't a procurator, he was a prefect. Who cares? But if you're a nerd, you care. So um, Pliny the Younger. Anybody heard of, ever, ever heard of Pliny the Younger? Well, we've heard of Pliny the Elder then. That was his dad. Pliny the Elder was the guy that recorded the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and actually died while doing that. He got out on a boat with his slave died. So why, the reason we know so much of the eruption of Vesuvius is because of what his dad did. Well, Pliny the Younger uh, describes, uh, I, I, this is awesome, okay? Whew, I get excited. So he describes his Christ, his, the Christian faith from the perspective of a Roman unbeliever. He was a, a, a ruler of a province of the Emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117 AD. And he writes a letter to Trajan saying, hey, Look, I got these Christian people, uh, and I don't know exactly what to do with them. This is what I've done so far. I want your advice, Emperor. Okay? So he writes this thing about how to handle, how to handle these Christians. And I'm going to just touch on just a few things. Um, these are people that refuse to worship the gods. We, if we were living right back then, we would have refused to worship the pagan gods. So they were considered by Romans to be like atheists. So, hey, what do we do with these people? So his formula for discerning whether a person was really a Christian, I want you to apply this to yourselves and then share it with other people, okay, was three things. Hey, would they renounce their allegiance to Christ? So if they renounced it, this guy's not a Christian, but if they kept it, you remember, these guys, they were being tortured, some of them, okay? Um, okay, one. The other one, would they worship the emperor? So if you don't renounce, would they at least worship the emperor? If they didn't do that, these guys are Christians. And on top of that, they didn't offer incense or wine. Now, this is all they had to do. The act was like this. That's how long it took. If they refused to do that, these guys are Christians. So he used these three criteria. He told Trajan, hey, I'm using these three criteria, and this is how I discern if somebody's a Christian or not. What do you want me to do with them? And in the process, he tortured two women, Christian women, to discover what the doctrines of the Christian faith were. I thought that, that was interesting. And he made the following statement, question, 
to Trajan the Emperor. He said, should the name itself, the name, name of a Christian, a person that carries that name, the three tests, he, he didn't pass, he's a Christian, okay? Should the name itself be punished, even if crimes are absent, or, this is the question he's asking the emperor, or the crimes that go with the name? Now, think about this for a second. So what he's saying, I think, is this, because there's some dispute there. He's saying, hey, if a person doesn't identify a Christian, can I execute them? Okay? Because if you're going to execute a potential Roman citizen, you have to have a reason. Okay? Can I execute them, absent any crimes? Is that sufficient just for them to be a Christian, an atheist? Or if there are crimes that go with the name? Now, the crimes could be atheism, but I think the crimes here means misconduct of some sort. Because when you start to look into a person's life, you're often going to find something wrong, and that should be justification. We'll come back to that. Okay? Uh, the other guys is Suetonius, clearly came later because of the color picture, right? I can't stop saying that. 70 to 130 AD, he was an equestrian. Anybody know the three categories of people in the Roman society at the time? The bottom guys were plebeians, but there's actually a further bottom, uh, the, the, the real, uh, the hapa, the, the very bottom. Those are the... Yes, that true, but you could be a slave and be a Roman citizen. Uh, later on, you could buy it, and there were people that were Roman citizens as punishments were sold as, sold as slaves. So yes, I agree with you. But there was one even further: barbarians. So people that lived on the fringes of society didn't speak Latin or Greek, bunch of babblers. Okay, but those are not the ones that we're concerned about. We're concerned about three right now, and the very bottom were the plebeians. Okay, the plebeians were the common people, and how do you take care of the plebeians in Rome? Bread and games, keep them entertained. If you know anything about Roman history, you don't want them getting out of control because there were two tribune of the plebs which were the, that ruled over the plebs that had a lot of power. And unless they're happy, you, you get the people all riled up, things go, go sour. The second category were equestrians. Equites? Horses. Horses. Yeah, exactly. So uh, these are guys that go back to when Roman troops were in the field, the guys that had more money could have horses. So they're the kind of middle. Uh, Pontius Pilate was an equestrian. He was an equestrian from Spain. A lot of good horses come from Spain. Uh, and not so good guys sometimes. <laughs> um, and then the top level was uh, the senators, which came from the uh, uh, one class. Patricians. So you had patricians, equestrians, and plebeians. So Suetonius, these two guys are very likely, I'm I shouldn't say 100% sure, they were uh, from the very top level here, they were, they were uh, why do I always draw a blank on that name? Patricians, and these are, this guy right here is an equestrian. And there's a point to this, okay? Uh, one of the points is that Pontius Pilate was an equestrian, okay? Um, he makes mention of the Jews being expelled from Rome under the rule of Emperor Claudius because of a guy named Crestus. Crestus. Crestus is a common slave name, but it could also be a corruption of the word Christ. Okay? Now, we'll come back to this as well. Okay? Now, the first question is, what is history? History is? Recorded. Written. Recorded. But it's written. Okay? All right? History is written. Well, what's archaeology? Doug. Doug. You dig it up. You dig it up. It's what the post hole diggers do. Because they all have PhDs, so they're close to it. <laughs> I love it. That's, cool. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Tell me. <laughs> you know, that's that's cool. I like it. So it's the uh, so archaeology is, is remains, right? Cultural remains. So I wrote here: material remains of a culture. 
Now, you guys have been studying under Ken, so I want you to give me some examples of what you uncover on an archaeological site. What type of articles? What's that? What, what do you find in an archaeological site? If we want, I mean, Ken's from a lot of dirt. A lot of dirt, yes. Pottery. Coins. Huh? Pottery. Coins. No rocks. Bones. Yeah. Animal. What's the most common item you find in an archaeological site? Pottery. Pottery. Pottery fragments, pottery shards. Um, uh, the second most common thing uh, is pottery, and the third most common thing is pottery. Pottery is like the absolute, it's everywhere, okay? And most of it is completely worthless. Uh, but some of them is not, so you have diagnostic pieces. Those are pieces that are a handle, a rim, or a base, because then I can figure out what kind of vessel it was. So those are some of the things that you uncovered. Now, what else do we uncover at an archaeological site that's a perfect intersection between history, written, and archaeology? Let me see if the next slide is what I think it is. Inscriptions, right? Inscriptions. So um, this top one is a famous one, the Rosetta Stone, right? So we had three languages on there. You had uh, Greek, something else, and Egyptian. But Cop Coptic. I think it was Coptic. So it was yeah. So what's what's that? Yeah, it's all Greek to me. And then the, this Polytarch inscription, it's, uh, it basically confirms what we know when Paul says that there were Polytarchs in Ephesus. And everybody's like, no, there isn't. Well, they found that, and that's actually a title. <laughs> so and this is a cool one. So this, is, this is, says, Erastus paved this road with his own money. Well, we know that there's an Erastus in the book of Acts, that he was a treasurer of a city. So that could be this guy. We don't know. So that's another thing we find, and it's a perfect intersection between history and, and archaeology, is our inscriptions. Now, the only contact I've ever had with inscription that I found myself is I was working in an area that was a... Um, uh, underground uh, olive press and I found a little rim and it's like one of a hundreds of little rims but I'm like hey it was a Hebrew Dalit the Dalit the, the, the D okay in Hebrew so it was a potter's mark and I like to think that that's kind of cool Com almost completely irrelevant but very relevant to me because I'm gonna die telling that story right <laughs> and uh, it's just awesome to me now um, <laughs> I got a D. I'm a solid D student. Um, so archaeology definitely illuminates a biblical text. We answered that question when we had our conference here a while back. Uh, but what we're going to do now is we're going to open our Bibles. Yes, I know. We're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to go to Acts 13, and we're going to go to verse 6. Acts 13, verse 6. Or as my son likes to say, the battle acts of the apostles. Uh, Acts 13, verse 6. And I, when you get there, I'm going to kind of keep going. I'm going to read it for us because there's a lot of information here. It says, when he had gone through the whole island, who's he? Uh, was Paul, and he started here in Salamis and went all the way to Paphos. When he had gone to the whole island as far as Paphos, and yeah, that is a whole island, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus, a proconsul. Okay, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas, and I'm not going to read through all of it, but the bottom nine is on verse 12, the proconsul believed. He became a Christian, became a believer. Okay, so who was Sergius Paulus? We know almost nothing about him, okay? But we do know this. He is, apparently, is that name. Now, names in Roman culture were very important, okay? They, they were lines, like a, 
You had to prove that you were one of those three categories of people, plebeians and questions, so people were very interested to know where they came from. He lived up here in Antioch. Well, there's an Antioch there. That's the Antioch of Pisidia. This is the Antioch of Syria, Antioch of Pisidia up there, okay? Now, here's what we know. We have three inscriptions found that have the, I don't want to say it wrong, but the name Sergius Paulus. This one, you kind of can make it out, Paulus Sergius. And here, that's all Greek to me, but it says something about the family of the, the Sergius family, okay? And this one also says the same thing, and it describes that they're in charge of some kind of water project, okay? So what we know from these inscriptions is not proving that Sergius Paulus was a real character. All it's saying is that, hey, at the mid-century, first century, there was a family with this last name that's from Antioch and Pisidia, which it's, it fits perfectly with somebody that would be upon, upon, uh, appointed to be proconsul of, of a place like, um, like Cyprus. Why? So, real quickly here, proconsuls, take the pro out, what do you end up with? Consul, okay? So, the Roman Senate was ruled by two consuls that were elected for a one-year period. Sometimes that was extended. A proconsul is somebody that goes in the name of the Senate as a proconsul to a peaceful place, okay? The difference between a proconsul and a prefect or, or a legate, a legate, an imperial legate, was a guy in charge of a Roman units, like a, a, a legion, and it would be to Cyprus, a nice peaceful place, would be to some place like uh, Syria or Egypt, okay? And a procurator would be one with the authority of the emperor that would govern in a place like Judea that didn't have a legion but had at least a thousand or more soldiers, okay, or auxiliary units. So what does this tell us? It tells us something very simple. It tells us that during the time that Paul was in this island, there was a family name of somebody in authority that could very likely be appointed by the Senate to rule it. So it doesn't prove the point, but it does illuminate the text, okay? Does it prove it? No. Does it illuminate it? Yes, it does, okay? So the other guy, we're gonna to go to Acts 18, so just skip forward to Acts 18, verse 12. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to go start reading already. And this is this, uh, the time when Paul is in Corinth. Let me see if I can put that up there. Paul is in Corinth, or Athens and Centre. Corinth is right where Centre is, right in that little isthmus right there. Kind of got covered in the picture. And he goes before this guy named Gallio, who is also a proconsul. We already know what a proconsul is. And this is a peaceful area at the time. He's a proconsul of Achaia, this whole area in here. And the Jews bring him over there, and they want to accuse him, and Gallo says, hey, this is some personal matter. I want nothing to do with this, okay? And here's what he says. He says, Gallo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see it to yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal, okay? What do we know about Gallio? We know a lot about Gallio. Gallio became a buddy of Nero after this, got super rich. These appointments made people very rich because they got corrupt. And went back to Rome, became a buddy of Nero, actually was like a stage manager for Nero in one of his crazy plays, and eventually made enemy of Nero and had to commit suicide, okay? So we know a lot about that from other Roman uh, sources, but here's the cool part. There's an inscription Oops. There's an inscription at the Temple of Delphi. 
in, in, in Greece that is a letter from the emperor, um, the emperor something or other, okay? Where is it? Okay, I think I have the actual letter here. But it's a letter from the emperor to, to Gallio. And we know for sure it is the exact Gallio, okay? And the cool thing is to be a pro, you can only be a proconsul for about two years. So we can date the time in which Paul was before Gallio to exactly about 51, summer or spring of 51 AD. Isn't that cool? So there's no doubt this is the Gallio. Because this Gallio, there's a, there's a whole trail of history. We don't have time to get into that right now. But this is it. So this is one that, hey, doesn't prove the biblical text, but it proves that the date in which it happened. We know that that event took place somewhere in the spring or summer of 51 AD, without a doubt. And what that inscription says is, Junius Gallio, my friend and proconsul, Evacaia, blah, 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 okay? Um, I think it was Emperor Claudius, but anyway, we're going to get ahead of ourselves here. The other one, and coming back to kind of where we started, Pontius Pilate, all four Gospels record him as a procurator. Uh, however, we know that he really was a prefect. So what's the difference? Why does it matter? Well, because skeptics will latch on to things like that and try to take it apart. The problem isn't the Bible, because the Bible doesn't use the word prefect. It's the way we translate it. And when people translate things, they look at what other people say, and they were wrong too. The guy that got it right was this guy named Philo of Alexander, Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria used the correct word, and he used the word prefect. Okay, and he was writing at the time in which Pontius Pilate was the prefect. So um, this sounds like little de insignificant details, but all I'm trying to do here again is just to equip you with some information. So when you meet a skeptic and you get a chance to share things, say, hey, you know, I think there's a lot more information. Then you don't dismiss this. Don't be so quick to dismiss this. Um, so uh, let's go quick review of where what we've gone so far. Okay, we know that history is written, right? So history is written. Archaeology is stuff we find for a post hole digger, right? Uh, uh, to include inscriptions, and inscriptions can be super informative, right? Um, the two intersect very nicely, as we just saw in the case of Pilate, okay? And, um, well, in the case of Julius Gallio specifically, but we're going to look at this uh, Pontius Pilate inscription here in just a minute. Um, we know that there are historical sources, guys like Josephus. Who's the other guy? Tacitus, uh, Pliny the Younger, and Suetonius. Okay, so we got at least four guys right there. Also, there's a whole bunch more, but Philo of Alexandria as well. And they all write in the first century, right? All these events took place in the first century, and these guys are writing in the first century. So when, you, when you're a student of history, you want first-hand account. You know, eyewitness accounts are, even though... You know, I say I wasn't eyewitness of the worst kind of witness, but when you're talking about history, you want people that saw it, okay? Um, we have archaeological evidence in the form of inscriptions to support the narrative of the Book of Acts in many, many different spots. And I, for those of you who were here early, you saw me kind of playing around with the screen and showing you, uh, you know, different pictures on there, but that's, that's, there's, there's plenty of that. And uh, we're going to go back now and dig a little deeper into, remember I said that we we're going to come back to some things, we're going to come back now to some things and see, and we're going to pick apart some of these a little, a little bit deeper. So the first guy we're going to pick on, and let me see, uh, I kind of put this together, guys, you know, I, I got about 12 hours notice on this, so. Um, 
Are you familiar with the Pontius Pilate inscription that was found in Caesarea? Does anybody know? Ever seen this before? Okay, great. Well, um, well, there it is. This is not the real one. The real one is in, in the Jerusalem Museum, but this is a copy of it. And what it says is Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea, uh, he dedicated this building called Tiberium. And nobody knows what that building is in Caesarea, but that's what that says. Okay? And if you want proof, this is proof. This is proof that Pontius Pilate existed, it's, and it's in all four Gospels, and, and it's proof. That this, is, this I have no problem saying it's proof. But does it prove the Bible? Well, the Bible doesn't need to be proven, but it illuminates the biblical text, okay? Now, let's, let's dig deeper, okay? So, I'm going to put this up here. Now, I want you just to put your thinking caps on and think with me, okay? Josephus. 30, thank you, Christian. 37 to 100 AD, wrote four books. Remember how I said that he sheds light on the date of the birth of Jesus? But not a good light. Because we know from Luke, Luke 2, 1 and 3 says this. Um, it, well, actually, let me just paraphrase it so we save some time. Luke 2 says that there was a census during the reign of a guy named Quirinius in, C, in Syria, Right? Says, during the, no, Caesar Augustus says everybody's got to go be registered during the reign of Quirinius. Now, one way you could read that is you could say that this was before the reign of Quirinius. There's a problem. The problem is that from Josephus, we quote-unquote learn that Quirinius was ruler of Syria in 6 AD. We know that Jesus had to be born before Herod was born, 4 BC. So which one is right? There's a 10-year discrepancy there. Oh, no. That's it. We throw away our Bibles. <laughs> now, that's just one guy. And, and Josephus got a lot. I'm a big fan of Josephus. He got a lot of stuff right. But what we don't know, and we're starting to figure out, I say we here, historians are starting to figure out, and I'm an amateur one, that there may have been, Quirinius may have ruled twice. Now let's go to our Bibles with that knowledge, and let's read Luke 2, 1 through 3. Somebody read it out loud for me and do it fast. We got, we're racing right now. We've got 13 minutes. If you find it, read it. Luke 2, 1 through 3? Luke 2, 1 through 3. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while, when, when, how do you say it? Quirinius. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to register, so that, that's it, right? Yeah, that's it. The first census. Now, if I want to distinguish between two events of a similar kind, do I, do I have to use? Yeah, I have to use first. This is the first one, not the second one. Say it again. So if I want to distinguish between two events of the same type, I say, hey, this is the first time, not the second time. Or this is the second time, not the first time. So the fact that Luke uses the word first indicates there may have been a second census. Oh, he would have just said just the census. So this problem, this is where... You know, history intersects archaeology a little bit and creates a little bit of a problem because, well, we know that Herod died because we know where his tomb is and we excavated that, blah, blah, blah. But how do we solve this problem? Two options. First, Quirinius ruled twice, and there is some evidence to indicate that he did rule twice. Uh, the, and there was an earlier census. I think that's the easiest solution. There's an earlier census because why then would Luke use the word first? Okay? Another option is... Um, Oh, let's not go to the other options for the sake of time, but 
I think that option is the best. That's a natural reading of the text, both in the original and in English, okay? So why put first if there was just one? Okay, doesn't make sense. So I trust Luke more than I trust Josephus in this case. And remember when we had uh, Dr. Stripling come out here, people come with their presuppositions to the Bible, and if their presupposition starts from unbelief, it's always gonna end up in where? Unbelief, okay? But we do wanna challenge people on that. So we came back to the first thing I said we're gonna come back to, Josephus, and how he kind of muddled the waters a little bit, but we found a solution to it that's pretty easy. Now let's talk about Suetonius. This is a review, 70 to 130 AD. He questioned, kind of middle of the pack, um, he makes mention of the Jews being expelled from Rome. Now, here's a challenge to you. Where in the book of Acts does that match up? There's a synchronicity there. Acts 18. Acts 18. Awesome. Acts 18, verse 2 specifically, okay? I thought I was going to have most of you guys. Can't put anything past you. So we have synchronicity there. So can we prove, you know, that that word crestus means Christ? Well, not really, but why would Claudius kick all the Jews out of Rome for some slave? It doesn't make any sense. So I think this is something that, you know, kind of illuminates the biblical text. Now, let's talk about Pliny the Younger, which is very interesting, right? Remember, he described the faith in the perspective of a Roman unbeliever. He applied those three principles, right, to figure out if a person was really a Christian. Hey, question to you, would you pass? You know, I had a discussion with somebody, I'm not going to mention, there's nobody here in the church, where they say, I don't know, back then, just pinch a little bit of the incense, pour a little bit of the wine, go live my life, you know? I'm not going to go risk my life for that, because I know in my heart I believe. But they weren't doing it back then. True Christians weren't. You know, I think we're going to be faced with some similar challenges in the future for us. So, I want to add a level of complication to that that we don't have enough time to cover, but I'm going to do my very best. You know, in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, Peter says, hey, if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good. Don't suffer for doing bad things. I think that this plays a role in this. Because remember how his question to the emperor is, do I punish people just for being a Christian? Or do I punish people for being a Christian and committing crimes? Think about it. If you're a Christian back in the first century and you were tortured, you'd never renounced Christ, but later on they found out you'd been cheating on your taxes and that's why you get executed, that's not so good. But the guy that wasn't cheating on his taxes and got executed, that's a better way of suffering. I think that's what Peter was talking about in part, but that's just Tim Philosopher's opinion and I've been wrong a lot. Now, um, I think we're going we're gonna to open up for some questions and whatnot because I know I just kind of covered a lot of things but here's the conclusion you can trust your Bible you can trust your Bible archaeologist supports it and history affirms it okay if you want to take one thing with you is these four guys names okay Josephus Tacitus Pliny the Younger and Suetonius well I don't know anything about it but you got Google on your cell phone or your computer so you can look things up all right, now I want to open up for some questions. Any questions? Oh, come on. What was the name of that letter with the letter? Yeah, there, there, in fact, I have a copy of the letter here. I'll read it out to you. So, it is my custom, sire, to refer to you all the cases where I am in doubt. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. He says a bunch of stuff. And in the meantime, this is the plan which I have adopted in the case of those Christians who have been brought before me. I ask them whether they're Christians. If they say yes, then I repeat the question a second time and also a third. So, blah, blah, blah. He goes through the whole process there. And here is the emperor's answer. 
The emperor is always going to say something very short, like, hey, keep doing what you're doing, or come back to Rome. It's usually one of those two options. He says, you have adopted the right course, my dear Pliny, in examining the cases of those cited uh, before you as Christians, for no hard and fast rule can be laid down covering such a wide question. The Christians are not to be hunted out. Well, that's nice. Thank you. I, I, if brought before you and the offense is proved, in other words, go through that three-part process, they are to be punished, but with this reservation. If anyone denies he's a Christian and makes it clear he's not by offering prayer to our gods, then he's to be pardoned and his recantation, no matter how suspicious his past. As for anonymous pamphlets, they're to be discarded absolutely. Now, one of the reasons he's saying this is because anonymous pamphlets were absolutely common in Rome. If you, they plaster stuff on the wall, they had stuff printed, and they, they always, fake news is not new, okay? And it says they're always to be the absolute, uh, discarded absolutely. Whatever crime they may, be, they may charge, for they're not only a precedent of a very bad type, but they do not accord with the spirit of our age, spirit of enlightenment. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Any other questions? We got five minutes. Yes, sir. The Pontius Pilate inscription. Uh, where was that discovered? Who discovered Caesarea. It? Caesarea. What's the reliability on that? It's 100%. It's found in situ. In other words, at the location in Caesarea, it's um, there's no it, the, the people that found it too are not they're not believers. These are not Christians digging for the truth here. They're just these are this is just archaeology, you know. Oh, I, there's no doubt about that. So I, I feel very confident about that. Any other questions? Um, you said that was for for his grave or something. What was no, that? so so. <coughs> Uh, so Pontius Pilate, when he arrived in Caesarea, he, he got the appointment to the position from his influence. So they had benefactors, like if you want to get an appointment, you have to have a buddy up, up the higher up the chain. His buddy was a guy that was one of the head of the uh, Praetorian Guard. And the, this particular person was known to be hated Jews. So when he sent Pontius Pilate there, I don't know if it was a, a favor to him or not, but it was a position he was given. And when he arrived there, he did something really dumb right to, from the beginning. He went in and set up, so in, in the ancient city of Rome, excuse me, the ancient city of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, there was the temple over here, okay, and then there was the Antonia Fortress that was kind of connected to the temple, and then there was the governor's palace that we're not exactly sure where it is, but it was within the city walls. He set up Roman shields uh, around that, and the Roman shields had a picture of the emperor. And you should not have any images inside the city of, of Jerusalem, so he made enemies with the Jews. And what he did is he refused to take him down, and they sent a delegation to Caesarea where he lived, and they all were in a uh, plaza there and complained for six days. On the sixth day, he, he had his soldiers mingle among them in civilian clothes, take their swords out, and they were gonna kill all the Jews. You know what the Jews did? They said they went like this, go ahead and cut. They all went like that. Go ahead and cut our throats, we're ready. So then he backed off and took the shields down. So uh, that's just a quick little story about Pontius Pilate. So he made, didn't make a lot of friends, but everybody that wanted to live in, in Israel at the time and wanted to be a Roman tend to get out of Jerusalem and live in Caesarea, kind of a lot like it is today. If you want to be a Jew, just not religiously, get out of Jerusalem, move to Tel Aviv, okay? 
because that's where the, the party is. And Caesarea is where the party was at. It, it sounds like Tiberium was some kind of um, building that was dedicated uh, and that Pontius Pilate contributed to that. He's the one that gave the money to it. Now, another story, he stole from the treasury. Luke is the only person that records that. He stole from the, from the Jewish uh, treasury to build an aqueduct. One of the other, and there's probably an, uh, repairs or an additional aqueduct going to Caesarea because Caesarea has no local water. So, he hired civil engineers. He was, he's really a, uh, a military guy. So, so a, a prefect had about 1,000 to 1,500 soldiers under him, unless they were what they called vexillations, where they would take chunks of a, of a Roman legion and send them down to serve with them. So they could, they could be big. They could have like 3,000 people under his command. Do you guys feel more like, hey, it's a lot of cool stuff, right? You gonna share it with other people? Be prayerfully thinking about who, you know, somebody comes up and he's a skeptic. Hey, there's a lot of evidence for this. It's not like just we're imagining it. So just to hmm? make sure I understand, um, so essentially you're saying there's lots of archeological and historical evidence that that many of the events discussed in the Bible actually happened, mm -hmm. or, or people, or they, people were existed. Okay, so people existed. Uh, the events happened. Intersection. Okay. Mm -hmm. So which lends credibility to, to its. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I'll go back to one of the slides up here. The purpose of our study is this: show that the Bible is reliable, illuminate the biblical text, okay, add color to it, and equip you to share with skeptics. Because when people dismiss the Bible, they're really, uh, just from intellectually, they're making a big mistake. Because real scholars don't dismiss the Bible, okay? Bad scholars dismiss the Bible. So I've gone through, I mean, I'm just a pilot like you, but I've gone through, I've read, I'm trying to read as much as I can, and the more I read, the more I'm convinced, you know, the shadow of a doubt, that this, the Bible is an accurate record. You know, and then the final one is to invite people to explore the Bible, either with you or invite them to come to church. Yeah. How about is, is there similar evidence uh, for the Old Testament? Yeah, and that's what Ken uh, has been teaching on. I, I was asked yesterday around noon to fill in for him today, and that's all he's doing is dealing with Old Testament, and that's kind of where I got involved in archaeology as well. So I've, I've, I participate. Uh, my son and I dug in uh, biblical eye. Uh, about just north of Jerusalem, could be the Ephraim of the New Testament, we're not sure. Uh, so we get, you know, when the conquest took place, we had Jericho and then I, uh, and then I've been excavating in Shiloh with uh, Associates with Biblical Research for the last few years. And we had a gentleman come here, Dr. Scott Stripling, who was the dig director, speak last year here, uh, and kind of opened this whole archeology span bit that we're on right now for Sunday School. Yes? Josephus was the one that wrote about Masada, right? Yes, okay. in fact, we think that Josephus, well, we're convinced Joseph was an eyewitness of the events that happened there, but the biggest question that people object to, that's, well, how can you know that these guys, I mean, how do you know what happened inside the walls? Do you guys know that there were survivors from Masada? There's a few women that were survivors. It's, it's likely by the way he writes that he talked to those women. Remember, he knew Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin. Easily communicate with them. And I've, I've, I've crawled all over Masada. I've got, if there was a sign that says, don't enter here, I entered there figuring, hey, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? They're going to kick me out of here, and then they won't remember me, and they'll have me come back. So, you know, the area where these women were hiding was likely on the south 
uh, east corner and a little crevice there. So, uh, well, I guess sir. One more. Yeah, no, no, please ask. The uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, where were they found in, in Qumran? What were they? Uh, what's that? And what were they? So the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Qumran is a, is a place just outside uh, the Dead Sea, okay? And there's some cave complex. They're related to the three main parts of Jewish society at the time. We had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection or in angels or in the afterlife. That's why they were sad, you see. And then, um, oldie but goodie. And then you had the Essenes. Now there's some other possible ones. The Essenes were, in fact, Josephus, in his own biography, says that he was a member of an Essene sect. The Essenes were these guys that said, hey, Pharisees, you're too legalistic. Sadducees, well, you're sad. And you have polluted the temple with your bad teachings. We're going to go out to the desert and wait for the Messiah to come. Anybody want to join us? Come on down. Okay? And what they did is they had record, they had Torah scrolls, and they uh, were all killed by the Romans right before Masada came down. And uh, they stored these scrolls in jars inside the old caves. And in the 40s, the 40s or 30s, a, a Bedouin shepherd was throwing rocks in a cave because he's watching sheep, and he hits one, and he goes, Hey, that sounds like a jar. Goes in there and finds all these scrolls. And it has every single book of the Old Testament except for one. And I think it's, uh, not, uh, where is it? Yeah, it's missing one. And it's amazing. And what, what happened is this, is that they looked at it up to that point in the 1940s. People were saying, well, the, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament are from 1000 A.D., and now they're comparing the 1000 AD docs to 300 BC and finding out that they're 99.9, .9, I mean, better than any Greek text in terms of reliability. And they're going, like, oh, geez, I guess we got a problem here. So that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. It messed everything up for, for skeptics. And notice how God does that, right? Because just as the state of Israel is being formed, this is found. You go to the shrine of the book in, in Jerusalem, you can go look through the, the, the scroll of Isaiah right there. And Isaiah, because it was kind of in the middle of the biblical text, got saved the best. Yeah. Because anything on the fringes of a scroll gets destroyed because of time, but it is in the middle. So you can go read Isaiah 53, right from, I mean, if God could make this any more obvious, the problem is that even if someone comes back from the dead, they will not believe. So how do people get saved? They get saved when the Spirit draws them. So unless some, the Spirit draws you, there is no hope, right? Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, one thing that I've seen skeptics do is that you can present them with a lot of evidence, but especially when you start honing in on Josephus and Tacitus and mm -hmm. things like this, where we have mentions of Jesus or we have mentions of things in the Bible, mm -hmm. they'll say, oh, Christians came in after the fact. And exactly. And, and uh, that's one of the, I was prepared to address that because I think that's an excellent question. I was hoping somebody would ask. Uh, yeah. That's why we don't overstate our case. Okay? Does the Bible need to be proven? No. It doesn't need to be proven. What we're doing is trying to illuminate the biblical text. We're doing what every scholar does. We look at things and we ask questions critically. So we're not trying to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. What we're doing is saying, hey, is the biblical text reliable? And if they start reading the Bible with an open mind and an open heart, and we're praying for them, God will draw them to themselves. We have a living example before us right here. A year and a half ago, did you believe any of this? Two years ago. Two years ago, did you believe any of this? No. Nope. 
here you are. So it can happen. Now the onus is on you to share this with other people. So I gotta join the, uh, our elders in that we're gonna start praying for a few minutes before the service, so I'm gonna go join them over there. So you all are dismissed, but before we go, let's pray right here. So Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we've learned today. Uh, we just pray that this will be used in our lives as we share this with other people. And uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.